Hey folks, welcome back to a new series of Research and Review. This is the podcast where we get to chat about research papers with the scientists who wrote them. In this episode, we discuss how some bacteria get imprisoned in intracellular jail cells called septum cages. We discuss about the importance of different perspectives in research and how this landmark paper laid the foundations for their current research career. Our guest today is Professor of Cellular Microbiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where he studies the role of cytoskeleton in innate immunity. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Sergei Mostoli. All right, thanks, Fraser. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for being with us today. Um, so you have worked and studied at different universities and institutes throughout your career. Uh, what's important for you when you're choosing a place to study or work? <laughs> For me, it was of great importance uh, to be interdisciplinary. I just think it's such a fantastic time, you, you know, especially when you're choosing a PhD, you're choosing a postdoc, you're young, you're flexible. There's so many fantastic technologies and fields emerging. In my case, I just found it transformative to kind of leap between disciplines, start afresh, and to, to really challenge new fields in different ways, you know. So I have a background in physics. PhD in genomics and postdoc in cell biology. And I think each of my skill sets helped me in different ways as I attacked the different fields. And uh, yeah, I'm a big advocate of getting on a plane and doing science in different countries. I think international science is the most rewarding, uh, you know, process there is. If you ever visit my lab, you know, you could be purple and fit in. There's so many different countries and mindsets contributing. They just come with you know, different backgrounds, different cultures, different perspectives. Do you find that uh, different countries around the world have sort of different ways of approaching problems? Or would you say in the sort of the fields of academia, everyone kind of has a similar way they attack a problem? Well, it's completely different, man. It's completely different when you, I mean, when you go from institute to institute or even floor to floor, but really when you go from country to country, because it's different funding systems, they attract different types of people and different institutes will specialize in different things. So it's about the critical mass you're surrounded by. And I don't really care how excellent you are, you are influenced by the people you're surrounded by and you want that. And, and it's, it's really, it's, it's cultures, the different mindsets and specialties uh, that will rub off on you. And would you say that for when you're going around around these different places that each each place that you've been has like an, a lesson that you've learned that you've been able to apply when you've moved to the different to the different institutes? Absolutely, because you approach problems differently. You know, you know, I think one of the great so my background in physics, you know, we're getting back to the early 2000s now when genomes were just being sequenced. Tuberculosis genome was just published in 1998 by Stuart Cole. But because I kind of had this mathematical mindset, I wasn't intimidated by these huge data sets. And so I could approach them in a very different way than, say, some of the more fundamental microbiologists. You know, with that approach and going to, you know, Pasteur to study cell biology, yeah, I had to reset. You know, I really had to take courses in cell biology and learn how to use microscopes. 
But again, it was this era of quantitative biology and this kind of quantitative approach to taking images. So again, my mathematical mindset helped me to visualize things in different ways. And I think the most important thing is when you're trying to start your own independent research group. Absolutely. And that, that's really interesting how you, even though your background's in, in physics, as you said, you're now looking at sort of uh, the cell um, biology of infection and specifically for intracellular bacteria. Uh, so could you tell us a bit like why you find, you know, intracellular bacteria really interesting and what makes them difficult to treat? The cell biology of infection, you know, using intracellular pathogens, it illuminates so much about both the infection process and about normal host cell biology processes. So in the lab, you know, we mostly focus on the human pathogen Shigella flexneri. Um, it's a category two pathogen. Uh, it's not too bad. It's, it's causative agent of, of traveler's diarrhea. It's a major burden, you know, hundreds of millions of illness episodes per annum. And, and for children under five, it can be bad news. And with antimicrobial resistance, it's even worse news. And if you think about some of the greatest hits in innate immunity, um, something like neutrophil extracellular traps discovered by Arturo Zislinski, nod-like receptors, Dana Philpot, um, bacterial autophagy, Chihiro Sasakawa, GBPs, you know, Feng Shao and, and Felix Rando at the LMB. It was because of Shigella. So it was because of using this intracellular pathogen that we know so much about and the way it engages the immune system it allows us to discover fundamental aspects of immunity that we did not know otherwise existed. So it's a really wonderful research tool to discover fundamental concepts in host defense. I gotta also mention, it's super closely related to E. coli. It's taxonomically indistinguishable. So just a great strength is all of those, the research that's being applied to E. coli, it's very easy to superimpose that onto Shigella because it's simply E. coli with a virulence plasmid. So that's yet another great strength uh, of using Shigella. What no one told me when I moved here is that Shigella is such a good human pathogen, uh, they've classified it as a terrorist threat in the UK. Wow. So uh, what I learned over the years starting my lab is that you have to work under very specialized conditions. I've got double bomb proof doors, 13 video cameras watching us. And it's not so much about health and safety. It's more about they're afraid of people stealing it. Because in fairness, Shigella is a great pathogen, man. It only takes around 10 or so bacteria to make you or sick and in that way you could imagine it could be weaponized so it's a bit of a burden to work within the lab um, and we're a bit isolated but we stick with it because we think we can discover things in ways that no one else can and how is Shigella able to be such an effective pathogen that only you know 10 you know 10 bacteria are able to you know cause the disease it's a great question, man. People have been thinking about that for a long time. <laughs> and there's actually no um, animal model that really works for Shigella for reasons we don't fully understand. The mouse actually doesn't get sick. You could pump it with thousands of bacteria and it doesn't get sick. The bacteria pass through. 
A breakthrough did happen in the field in the summer of 2020 from the, from the lab of Russell Vance in California, and they discovered that the mouse inflammasome actually is able to clear Shigella in ways the human inflammasome could not. So that tells us a lot about species-specific differences of inflammasome biology and how Shigella can engage that. So now for the first time, there's a mouse model that can develop Shigellosis-like symptoms. As to why it can engage uh, humans so well, it's got something called a virulence plasmid. So it's a type three secretion system. You can think of that as a molecular syringe. And what that syringe does very efficiently is that it interacts with host cells. So unlike some of the other guests you've had on this podcast that study interbacterial competition, the type three secretion system is basically a needle that likes to stab host cell membranes. And so it, by stabbing the host cell membrane, it's able to pump in all these virulence factors to manipulate host cell biology. So you can think of it as reprogramming the host cell in order for it to dictate its infection process. It's type three needle is absolutely essential for Shigella to invade epithelial cells, to escape from the host uh, cell phagosome. So once it's in the cytosol, it can make these amazing actin tails. And kind of that was our discovery as we discovered how host cells could stop these actin tails. Uh, in these septum cage-like structures. Could you explain to us a bit about why this is such a important paper for your career? First, I'll focus on the science. I, I think it was, again, it was a very special time. You know, this paper took a long time uh, to assemble. It was based on years of discovery, uh, you know, years of piecemeal discovery. It was also a special time in the septin field. I remember in 2007, uh, the crystal structure had just been solved. And, and so in that way, it helped us to kind of focus on the different septins. But this paper, well, it's important for a variety of reasons, right? You go do a postdoc to discover something special. And so this was discovered in my fourth year. And when you make such a discovery, you wanna prove that it matters. And in order to prove that it matters, I wrote to the Wellcome Trust and I applied for one of these research career development fellowships. And uh, the UK in particular is such a great system to transition towards independence. And it was based on this discovery that I wanted to start my own independent research group. I, 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 felt, um, I felt there was potential in continuing uh, with this septin structure kind of for a lab for a, for a variety of reasons. Um, one, it was a new way to think about host defense. No one else had ever thought of actually stopping actin tails um, in order to prevent bacterial infection. So it was the first time that we could uh, do that. Autophagy, um, is just an amazing process that's really unfolded in our scientific lifetime and it won the Nobel Prize in medicine, Asumi, um, I forget the year now, but so there was a buzz about bacterial autophagy and actually a UK was doing it as well as anybody. Again, Felix Randow at the LMB was discovering these selective autophagy receptors, really highlighting um, how bacterial autophagy was crucial. And so because we were able to link septins to bacterial autophagy, we were able to think about autophagy in brand new ways. Links between the cytoskeleton and autophagy were very poorly understood, but I could address kind of more common questions in the host defense field, you know, Shigella, bacterial autophagy, inflammation, 
coming at it with a very different angle because we were focusing on the septin cytoskeleton, which was relatively unique. Um, everyone else in the septin field uh, was focused on cell division because that's where septins were originally discovered. You know, Nobel laureates Leland Hartwell, Paul Nurse, Tim Hunt, um, they got the, shared the Nobel Prize for discovering genes essential for the yeast cell cycle. It was Leland Hartwell in the 70s that actually observed that septins were essential for cell division. And it took decades uh, before we were able to link it to the bacterial infection process. Absolutely. And going into uh, going into the actual paper itself to you know provide a bit of a background for the discovery that you made. Could you describe a bit about how septin rings work, you know, outside of the function that you found in the paper? Yeah, I was. Everyone's still working on it. It's what the field is about. Is right. There are major questions in the field. It's it's really enigmatic component of the cytoskeleton. There's many labs studying actin at the highest level and microtubules at the highest level. And so, because septins are a fourth component of the cytoskeleton, we're the first lab to really look at it in the context of infection biology. I would say the great majority of our field is focused on septins and their role in cell division because that's where they were discovered. And there are many things we don't understand, you know, how they assemble into these fascinating higher order structures, which include rings to enable uh, cytokinesis. What septins do very well is they form ring-like structures. What they do very well is they also recognize sites of micron scale curvature. So there's thought, you can consider them as a molecular ruler. So if there is curvature inside the cell, whether it's the bud neck, or at the site of invasion of a bacteria, the septin cytoskeleton can recognize membrane curvature on the order of one micron. How it precisely recognizes it and how it uses that membrane as a template are really at the top of our research agenda to try and understand that. But septins themselves, the structures have been associated to a wide variety of processes, man. If you think of phagocytosis, cell division, um, dendritic spines, annulus of sperm, um, associated with all kinds of organelles, they really play fundamental roles in a wide variety of cellular processes, mitochondrial fissions. I think what's equally important is that when septins aren't working appropriately, you know, septin dysfunction, that's associated to a wide variety of human diseases. We focus on them in the context of infection biology, but they've been linked to cancers, or variety of neuro neuropathies for many, many years. Um, and so that's why we feel that the lessons we learn from studying Shigella and how it manipulates septin biology, that can help us think about the roles for septins in different human diseases, um, including some of the neuropathies that they're associated with. So I think we can contribute in, in ways beyond infection biology, at least that's the hope. It assembles Absolutely. in really in completely different ways th than the other cytoskeleton components. And I think you can appreciate, it's really quite stunning, you know, the assemblies um, uh, they contribute. And so it's really, it's really great for infection biology and microscopy in general. Absolutely. And moving towards the, you know, what you discovered in it about how septum cages form around the intrasystolic bacteria um, like Shigella. And you, in your paper, you have these really, you know, 
striking photos of these cages and you used a uh, stochastic optical reconstruction microscopy. And could you explain a bit about what this technique is and what you saw when you looked at the images through this technique? So when we saw the cytoskeleton rearranging, rearranging around our, our intracellular bacteria, it was very special because it was the first time that we could link the cytoskeleton to host defense. You know, the cytoskeleton is involved in a variety of things, including making actin tails, but people hadn't really considered it as a bona fide component of cell autonomous immunity per se. And so these septin ring-like structures, or if you think of Shigella, it's on the order of one micron in diameter. It could be roughly three microns in length and they divide, you know? And so, but that size of these bacteria, it completely, yeah, I don't, I don't want to call it luck because you create your own luck, but that's why Shigella has transformed this research avenue. It just happens to be the right size to be recognized by the septin cytoskeleton. And so what septins do very well is they form these ring-like structures with diameters of around 600 nanometers or you know, 0.6 microns. And so in this way, they can recognize and wrap around uh, bacteria that are inside the cell. And I mentioned uh, to you earlier that it's a great time in terms of microscopy. You know, these things are being innovated faster than iPhones. And so uh, super resolution uh, microscopy was the award of the Nobel prize to Eric Betts and others. Um, Oof, the year escapes me now, but not too long ago. And that just completely revolutionized our capacity to see um, ultra structure or to visualize very small structures inside the cell. And it was, just, it was just perfect for the sizes we were looking for, 200 to 500 nanometers inside the cell. And so the advances in microscopy just really lent themselves that we could see our structures unlike anyone else before us. And so using these super resolution microscopes, we could more precisely see how the rings would wrap around the bacterial surfaces. It was a bit slow at the beginning because we couldn't do it in real time. But again, the new microscopes are enabling that. So we can watch this process in real time. And so it really is the advances in microscopy. It dictates the advances we can make in the cell biology of infection because of the way it promotes how we see things. I don't know if you've ever seen an act. Have you ever seen an actin tail at the microscope? What an amazing kind of discovery. Yeah, Pascal did it for Listeria. Michael Way did it for Vaccinia tails. Um, Marsha Goldberg for, for Shigella. It, it's an uh, absolutely electric process to watch, you know, how bacteria hijack the host cell actin cytoskeleton in order to run away from the immune system and, and to cause disease. And by the time I joined Pascal's lab, that was really kind of a staple. It's really, it's the flagship example of what infection biology has contributed to cell biology because it was Matt Welch when he was doing a postdoc with Tim Mitchison. You know, he was able to use these Listeria actin tails to discover the host cell nucleator of actin. He discovered ARP23 and that transformed the whole actin research community. And so it's really one of the flagship examples of how using the bacteria to study cytoskeleton rearrangements uh, can transform our understanding of cell biology. So we were looking at a different component of the cytoskeleton 
And uh, what I was able, I guess, to observe after many hours at the microscope is that we would see two types of bacteria. You know, we'd see these bacteria polymerizing actin tails and zipping around the cell. And then we saw these other bacteria that were trying to polymerize actin because they, they had actin associated with it, but it failed to polarize because they were entrapped in these cage-like structures and they were moving nowhere. And I was watching these things for hours and they never move. And so I guess the hypothesis was at the time was that we've got some bacteria that are moving, some bacteria that are recruiting actin and they're not moving. These ones happens to be in septins. Could this be an antagonistic process? Is it possible that the septin cytoskeleton network is somehow antagonizing actin assembly in the cytosol to prevent actin tails from forming. It was based, you know, some of our, our original observations because I'd study septins at the phagocytic cup and we knew that they somehow responded to actin. I, I remember that it was like many, it was kind of frustrating years because bacterial entry is a much faster process. It was really more difficult to capture at the microscope. And we were able to show that septins reacted to the actin cytoskeleton. And so when I knew that, I recognized that I was in the best lab on the planet to study another process of actin polymerization, these actin tails. And although we never caught septin cages in the case of Listeria, it was very clear that in the case of Shigella that they were entrapped. We had the hypothesis that cages stopped actin tails, and now we were in a position to test because siRNA had been in innovated and you could knock down septin proteins. And in that way, we were able to observe that when you took away septins, we had three to five times more actin tails and significantly more bacterial dissemination from cell to cell. And it was from experiments based similar to that, we were able to show that septin, their job description is to stop actin tails and to stop bacteria from disseminating and in that way prevent disease. Absolutely. And it's, it's really an interesting, you know, um, as, as the people discussed that these cages reduce the spread between the, the other cells. Um, so it's just really interesting how sort of it's a, it's a response from the cell to to stop these uh, bacteria from escaping, which, as you said, is what they do with the actin tails. Um, it's really so the that first time that we could link the cytoskeleton to kind of a host defense process. And how precisely they stop actin tails, we don't know. But one thing they do very well is they don't allow them to happen. Absolutely. And this moves on to sort of a question to round up what we've discussed about. So we've, you know, we've established that, you know, these actin tails um, are really important for motility. They're how the bacteria escape. So do you think that the goal of these septin cages is to prevent the actin tails or is it to trap the bacteria so they can be broken down or both? I love your question, Fraser, because that's really what my lab is all about, right? We want to understand the breadth of roles that the septin cytoskeleton has in host defense. Um, I, well, short answer, both. I think septins are doing many things. Um, I think what they do do is they prevent actin tails from forming, precisely how they do that. But it's also important you keep them in place, right? So they're not moving anywhere, but what's actually happening to them when they're stuck? I remember, so that was kind of the frustrating thing at the time in 2012, when, you know, at this time of this paper is, you know, we would submit this 
And uh, there were two major questions coming back from the referees. One, does this matter inside a whole organism? You know, is there a whole, is there a whole animal relevance to these cage-like structures? And two, what's going on to these bacteria? It might be a pretty cushy place to be, right? Because if they're in, even though they're not moving anywhere, are they being cleared? Um, or, or maybe, you know, they're hiding out from other host defense mechanisms. Maybe it's a, a mechanism of bacterial persistence. You know, maybe they're actually good for the bacteria. And it was really tough, man, Fraser, in my time in defense, bacterial cell biology is not where it is now, in part because the microscopes weren't quite there yet. So to actually label a bacteria as live or dead inside a cell is not so straightforward, even in 2022. So now the microscopes are better and the tools are better. And we know a lot about the host cell processes. But in 2010, the best we could do is we were able to link it to bacterial autophagy. So we had the bacteria in cages were in the cytosol. There were just fantastic papers uh, coming out on how Shigella and the cytosol were recognized by bacterial autophagy. So we tested the hypothesis that could these bacteria, they're not allowed to make actin tails so then it can no longer run away from autophagy, but could they perhaps be contributing to the recognition of Shigella by autophagy? And indeed they were, so they were perfectly coincident. So in this first paper, we're able to link that septin cages were targeting bacteria to destruction uh, by autophagy, the intracellular degradation process. Thank you so much for your response, and I think that's a great, uh, a great note to to leave off. Um, thank you so much for talking us through your paper today.